Hi, everyone. In today's recording, Claire and I will talk about Frank Norris's novel McTeague, A Story of San Francisco. This is a very underread, I'll say unread novel these days, but as I hope you'll see, I think it's actually one of the best discussions Claire and I have had about a book recently. We range all over the place from obsession to greed, America, money, romance, Don Quixote, the Bhagavad Gita. We talk about art and nature and truth and beauty. To start with the quote of the day, Frank Norris once said, Evil is short-lived. Never judge of the whole round of life by the mere segment you can see. The whole is, in the end, perfect. But you have got off Instagram and have a website. We do no self-promotion. We have never done any self-promotion. Um, so I feel like for once it's okay if you tell the good folks listening, all two of them, what your website is. You can sign up for a newsletter. On this website, you can find access to not only Claire's paintings, but her novel, her book of poems, her album of music. Mm-hmm. So shamelessly self-promote. <laughs> I can't do it. You can't do it? <laughs> What's your website? It's com. And yes, I mispronounced my own name C- for the sake of ease. C-L-A-I-R-E-A-K-E-B-R-A-N-D-A-R-T. Yeah, ClaireAkebrandArt.com. <laughs> Go check it out. Let's have some fun tonight. Oh. You recently sent out your first newsletter. Yeah. I, I realized without Instagram that I still, I do want to share... I want to share my thoughts, and I want to share them hard. Because <laughs> <laughs> they are gold. Speaking of gold. No, I just, I don't know, it just feels weird. Like when I picked up this book, I started reading McTeague, I was like, I wish I could tell somebody about it. And I usually, oh, we, Instagram, I would, you know. Here we are doing that in some way. That's right. But Instagram was my place where I'd share what artists I was enjoying, or what music, or what, what books, and so. E.M. Forster, one of your favorite authors, his motto, only connect. Yeah. There's, it's noble and important to connect with other humans. It's just very unfortunate that social media puts numbers on it, validates all of the wrong things, and <sighs> it promotes so much self destructive. I know. You never get together with a group of friends, and there's never a number of likes attached to each thing you say to your friends yeah. in real life. You know what I mean? <laughs> It's a great thing to say for this conversation because every, well, 99.9% of social media interactions have a made in France label. Exactly. Pasted on them. They're all right, and, phony. And Instagram is quote unquote non toxic paint. <laughs> but it's toxic. It will give you blood poisoning. <laughs> yeah. That's us being, that's us being, what did you say in your first newsletter? Morally superior? Self-righteous. 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 You also hilariously in this newsletter described the persona that subscribers can look forward to enjoying as a what? A slightly horse entertainer on a subpar cruise. (laughs) (laughs) A burnt out stand-up comic. Yeah. (laughs) Who also does a bit of magic. Yeah. I throw the microphone from hand to hand. Where are you folks from? Claire Akerbrand Art. You should all check it out. It's amazing. She does great stuff. <laughs> Let's have some fun tonight. Throwing the microphone hand to hand. Woo!
Why did you pick this book to read? No one, no one will have ever heard of it. No one will have read it. I hadn't heard of it. Well, I'm probably going to give you too much of a backstory, but I decided recently. <laughs> January 9th. <laughs> <laughs> I decided recently to completely abandon Instagram for obvious reasons. And then I found myself one morning, very early in the morning, during my favorite time where the kids are asleep and everything's quiet, I found myself, instead of scrolling on my stupid phone on Instagram, um, I found myself picking a scrolling, browsing through the bookshelf instead. And I saw this book, and I, it, it's black with that um, Library of America look, and I know that those books are always amazing. And I had never heard of Frank Norris. I had never heard of the book McTeague. And it was extremely intriguing to me to just start somewhere completely with a blank slate. I didn't look the book up at all. I didn't look up the author. I just started reading and it was immediately interesting. And I never lost interest. Yeah. And I'm glad you suggested it because I never would have chosen to read it otherwise. And I'm really glad I did. We should, I was wondering if we should, I think it's unavoidable, give away the whole plot, right? Yeah, that's fine. It's fine, right? I mean, the Press book's pause. been around for about a hundred years. I feel like most people would have, <laughs> I was about to say, would have seen it by now. <laughs> Press pause, go read the book and come back and listen. Let's explain the plot. Mm, yeah, you're better first. at that. Am I? Yeah, way better. <laughs> I mean, I just went off telling you about Instagram. No, no, no. That's good. Context is good. Yeah. Well, there's this guy named McTeague. Do we even know his first name? No. Yeah, Mac is what people call him yeah. short for short, but yeah. He um, grows up poor in this kind of mining town. This fake dentist, this kind of fraudulent dentist, takes him under his wing as an apprentice. He becomes a dentist. And in San Francisco, he courts this girl, Trina. They get married. They're, I suppose, adequately happy. She, this happens early in the book, she wins the lottery. While they're engaged. While they're engaged. Yeah, that's right. She has $5,000, which they all seem to think it's a huge amount, but I don't well, actually know how much that was back then in the early... Yeah, I can't say exactly, but 100 years ago in San Francisco, I think you're set for life if you win five grand. And he has this friend, Marcus, who was interested in Trina, but very gallantly gave Trina up to uh, McTeague. There's a funny passage I want to read about that. Anyway, Trina wins five grand, and everyone, of course, is very happy, including McTeague. They get married... And they have an okay life for a couple years. And what needs to be said next, do you think? Trina gradually becomes... The first thing that we learn about her is that she's good at economizing. She's good at running the household economy. But then her love for this money and her need to save even more and more money gradually grows and grows and grows. Yeah, this little hobby turns into a real obsession. Yeah. And she keeps it secret from her husband. She has this secret little savings... On top of the jar. five grand. Yeah, under her bed, and then she, she just never tells him about it, and things come up, and she's like, no, we can't afford it, we can't afford it. And he's like, but I bet you have at least 200, you know, so-and-so much saved up in your little jar. And she's like, oh, no, if barely 50, maybe. Yeah, not to mention the five grand. They're living off the interest of this five grand. Yeah. And um, he loses his job because people, authorities find out that he has no degree, no diploma. So he can't practice dentistry. He goes from one crappy job to the next. They downsize because Trina is obsessed with saving and saving and saving and hoarding and hoarding. Then they downsize again. Yeah, they live in much cheaper apartments than they need to. 
And Trina has her own little job of painting Noah Ark animals for a toy store. And then uh, McTeague gets drunk one night and steals this little savings purse with like $400 in it and leaves. It's gone in a few days or a few weeks. He comes back starving and destitute and asks Trina for help. She says no. He gets madder and madder over the next few days, drunker and drunker, and uh, murders her. This, yeah. In a drunken rage, murders her in a school, in, a, in the closet of a kindergarten classroom. And kids find her. And kids find her. And uh, McTeague escapes back to these mining towns that he knows, and he's constantly on the run. He meets this guy, and they go prospecting in the desert together, wandering around the desert. They do find gold. McTeague is once again confronted with the prospect of becoming rich, but he feels himself being pursued, so he has to flee. He's running and running and running. He gets into Death Valley. And who is chasing him but his friend Marcus, who he's been more or less quarreling with the whole book. And uh, they're both lost together in Death Valley with no water. They have this fight. They shoot the mule because the mule has... um... A canteen that they want to drink from, but it's galloping away. So they shoot the mule and it collapses, but it collapses onto the canteen and all the water spills out. And so they're basically, yeah, it's a death sentence. And then they take out their rage on each other by attempting to beat each other to death. And just as, this is like the final page of the book, just as McTeague is strangling Marcus to death, Marcus slips a pair of handcuffs onto him and then onto McTeague's arm. And the book ends with McTeague being shackled to a corpse in the middle of Death Valley. Mm. So <laughs> I, it, it's very strange because it... It's probably one of the most absolute, most depressing books I've ever read. It starts off tonally as a kind of Coen Brothers comedy. It's Everyone, very jovial. Like burn after reading. Everyone is a kind of clown. It's very jovial. And people's faults are cute. Even you kind of laugh at them. You That's know. right, yeah. But then just it gradually becomes more and more There Will Be Blood-esque. Mm-hmm. I know, and even saying that, you know, summarizing the book right now, it all sounds completely implausible that you could make that believable in a book, but he really pulls it off. Nothing seems... I mean, it is shocking, you know, when he murders her and at the end, and but it never seems to come out of nowhere, you know. No. It's natural. It's all very... Yeah. Do you think this book is too depressing? Yes, but I don't think there's anything wrong with it. Is it life-affirming? That's a question we've been asking about books. You know, since we started this podcast, we have this theory that... Even the most dark and depressing art is in some way life-affirming. I, I to, do. I have to admit that this book, it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse for these people until until it literally couldn't get any worse. You still I know, think it's life-affirming. I do. It, it gets horrible for every character, all the characters in the book, including Trina's family. Her mother, they lose money, their business, and they have the husband, her father has to move to New Zealand, and that's not working out, and yeah. they might end up needing to rely on Trina for financial help. There's another woman who gets murdered by her husband. Yeah, but... Over, over money as well. But I do think it's life-affirming because, and only because, that senior couple that lives in the same building, <laughs> Granis, that is the guy's name, and uh, Mrs. Baker. Yeah. They have an extremely cute relationship. Yeah. They spent years living in neighboring apartments. But that used never to spoken, be the same apartment. But they've never spoken. But they spend, they sit, quote unquote, sit with each other in the evenings because 
They'll both sit against this wall that separates them and they can hear each other and they know each other's patterns and they have this unofficial agreement that they just be with each other in the evenings. And then eventually, you know, chapter after chapter, their relationship progresses into a real romance. And I, yeah, and I think Grannis, he's the only one in the book who has a the right uh, relationship to money, as far as I can tell, because he he makes these pamphlets and he has some kind of system. I don't know if he has some kind of machine that he made to make the pamphlets. Yeah, I think so. And he sells the patent of that to a company or mm-hmm. something, and he ma- ends up making a lot of money. But then he realizes, sitting alone in his apartment, that now that he is not making pamphlets anymore the routine's broken up and he feels really disconnected from Miss Baker on the other side. And he's like, oh, it wasn't worth it. I shouldn't have sold that stupid thing. I could still be in the same routine, you know, with her. Yeah, that little exercise gave him meaning. And he realized that the money, what's the money for? What do I need that money for? I had a meaningful thing in my life. I mean, am I wrong? He's the only one who ever wondered or realized that money was not more important than a Mrs. Baker you're not wrong at all. This, this book was made into a film in 1924, a yeah. silent film, and the title of that film is Greed. And you're every single character, McTeague, Trina, Marcus, Maria, Zerkov, every single character, all they care about is money. So a question I had for you is, do you think that there's something fundamentally American about this book? All, all countries and people care about money. I don't want to get down on America. I love living in America. Not just I, money, but also just prized or valuable things, like gold. those gold dishes that Maria always talked about. But do you think that there's that Frank Norris is putting his finger on an, a, not a uniquely American phenomenon, but a particularly American phenomenon, the pursuit of wealth? Yeah. I mean, I read this book and I thought it, it, it couldn't be more relevant. Everyone is on Instagram trying to become famous and therefore rich. I know. Everyone wants to be rich. Everyone instantly wants to be rich or famous, but they're kind of synonymous. And I'd be willing to bet you, I don't listen to a lot of contemporary music at all, almost none, but I bet 80% of it is about money. Yeah. Like, completely, officially, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The getting of it. And you hear about those depressing surveys sometimes where like 50 years ago, if you polled elementary school students and you asked them, what do you want to become? They would say stuff like doctors, lawyers, the president, an astronaut. And now they give answers like when they're asked, what do you want to become? A huge portion of them answer, I want to become famous. Yeah. And rich. So it's not even like I want to have this meaningful vocation. It's like, I don't care what gets me fame and and wealth. That's what I want. Yeah. So it seems to me that there was something extremely prescient about this book. People in this book don't or don't dream of working really hard and then earning money. They they all just want it for free. Yeah, and I think that there's something kind of um, there's a lack of meaning in their lives. They have no spiritual or aesthetic center. Listen, this is maybe my favorite characterizing detail. When I landed on this detail, this is on page five, it told me everything I needed to know about McTeague. This is describing the objects in his apartment. Three chairs, a bargain at the secondhand store, ranged themselves against the wall with military precision. Underneath a steel engraving of the court of Lorenzo de' Medici, which he had bought because there were a great many figures in it for the money. 
<laughs> I absolutely wow. love that. There's the steel engraving, and he's like, "It's, it's a good, it's a good purchase because for the price, the picture has lots of people in it." So, so it has. He's not making an aesthetic judgment. It's not depicting something particularly meaningful to him. He's like, well, 10 people in that painting for this price? That's what I want. Do you know what I mean? So even art becomes reduced to how can I get the most for the least amount of money? How can I get, quote unquote, the most, the biggest quantity of art for the least amount of money? Yeah. I would actually say that the faults of these characters or their great downfall is that there is absolutely no art in their life, no true art, even though they work in many ways. They do a lot of, you know, artsy things. <laughs> I mean, Trina paints these figures, right? That's right. Those little figurines, those toys for the kids. and Yeah, so she's always in the business of painting. She's always just doing it for the money. And I th this detail's repeated twice, which I thought was interesting. It She always adds made in France at the end, you know, as instructed <laughs> by the toy store. <laughs> so it's like, it's just yeah, exactly. non-art and it's dishonest art. Fraudulent. There's it's just facade after facade. Yes, and I think in that way. And McTeague, he uh, he plays, what is the instrument he plays? Concertina. What is that? I think it's, uh, we should have Googled this. I think it's some kind of accordion-like instrument. But then is, is it another, is another word for it, melodion? Because at the end that comes in. And he says, that's my melodion, you know, at a thrift store later on? Yeah, it's a kind of little accordion. Oh, so it's the same. Okay, interesting. Yeah. So you could say melodion too. It's a musical instrument, yeah. He plays as yeah. part of his routine. But, um... So but he, he only, he, and he sings while he shaves, but he only knows one song. Exactly. And I, f I thought it was all so fascinating. These characters seem to really ache and yearn for true art, but they don't know how to get there. And often it seems like they're confused. They're yearning for meaning, meaning, or that comes through art, for example. Meaningful expression is confused with with wealth. Totally. I don't even think they know they're yearning for art. They don't they yeah. don't know that such a realm exists. McTeague's highest dream for like the first half of the book is great even greater than getting married. His greatest aspiration is to get a giant golden tooth that he can hang as part of his dental shop sign outside of his shop. And again, it's just this fake thing, right? It's, it's exactly a fraudulent right. tooth. Exactly right. But which is also interesting because art's fake too. It's an art, you know what I mean? <laughs> That's the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, I find it so interesting because he speaks about this tooth, this display tooth as some kind of great work of art. He's, he says it's, I think it's so beautiful. And, you know, he speaks of it like some art collector, you know? <laughs> mm -hmm. And he's just trying to get enough money together to get it. I can't help but just see this really heartbreaking lack of of beauty in their lives. They live in a city and they don't have they're they're not they're just surrounded by businesses. Nothing in their life involves anything beautiful. Trina goes um to on picnics with her family, at least in the beginning. And McTeague even says, I've never been on a picnic before. Yeah, they don't seem like to he's, be enjoying nature. Exactly. That's even. the that's the interesting thing. He's never done a picnic. And I feel like I've come across so many people. We live in Utah, which is so beautiful, has some of the most beautiful landscapes I've ever seen in my life anywhere. 
But there are so many people in Utah who don't seem to be aware of the landscape at all. Lots of people take advantage of it, but a surprising number don't. Yeah, right. A surprising number of people. And my point is, this is not an anti-America podcast at all. I just feel like so many people are raised in ways that just don't leave any room for non-practical things like nature appreciation, something that simple. And if you do go into nature, it's got to be because you're doing something to it, like four-wheeling or, you know, like specific sports. Mining for gold. How can it make me rich? Exactly, yeah. How can it bring me something else and not just be the thing that it is, right, nature? No, it's not. We, we've talked before. You, you're from Scandinavia. You have a sister who lives in Taiwan. We've mm. lived in different parts of the world. There's no perfect culture out there. Some no. some are better than others, of course. Or some are more conducive to a healthy life than others. But yeah. nowhere is nailing it. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? If we were to move to sometimes Scandinavia is on the left, especially exalted as some kind of perfect utopia. But it has as deep problems as America does. They're just different problems. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Charles Bukowski, the poet, I think, said that in America, money is more real than death. Mm. And I think I think that that's true. I think that's a particularly American problem, this obsession with kind of rags to riches. Yeah. The American dream, you know, the American dream inherently involves wealth. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I, I like this paragraph. Marcus gives up. Trina, well, I should read this funny bit. This will give you a sense of what I mean about the Coen brothers' comedy. McTeague finally confesses that he has this crush on Trina, who he knows Marcus is also kind of courting. But Marcus says, I'll give her up to you. I won't stand between you. And then the narrator says this, clearly as a kind of like free indirect discourse, (laughs) satirizing this kind of fake nobility. What a fine thing was this friendship between men. The dentist treats his friend for an ulcerated tooth and refuses payment. The friend reciprocates by giving up his girl. This was nobility. Their mutual affection and esteem suddenly increased enormously. It was Damon and Pythias. It was David and Jonathan. Nothing could ever estrange them. Now it was for life and death. I'm much obliged, murmured McTeague. He could think of nothing better to say. I'm much obliged, he repeated. Much obliged, Mark. That's all right, that's all right, returned Marcus Schuler bravely. And it occurred to him, Dad, you'll be happy together. Tell her for me. Tell her. Tell her. Marcus could not go on. He wrung the dentist's hand silently. It had not appeared to either of them that Trina might refuse McTeague, which I think is hilarious. <laughs> Just deciding this poor woman's fate without any of her permission. But he pretty much easily gives up romance. But what he hates giving up is the money. As soon as he finds out that she wins the lottery, this is what Marcus says to himself. You fool, you fool, Marcus. If you'd kept Trina, you'd have had that that money. You might have had it yourself. You've thrown away your chance in life to give up the girl, yes. But this, he stamped his foot with rage, to throw $5,000 out of the window, to stuff it into the pockets of someone else when it might have been yours. You know what I mean? So he doesn't care about love or a person or a human or a marriage or... Yeah, all the characters are very disconnected from, from real life. They're blinded by their desire for wealth except that old couple exactly but they do have a i don't know they're and to be fair while you're looking for that yeah it's the characters are really pretty complicated because trina has her generous moments she's very delightful in the beginning she's a gentle um that's right and generous and 
And she cares about McTeague. Sweet person. She buys him a gold tooth that he dreamed about. That's right. She cares about him and feels guilty about not being able to give him a better life. And she even buys him the more expensive gold tooth. Yeah. You know, once we find out later just how, what a penny pincher she is, to say the least, that becomes even more moving that she bought him that that gift, right? As a sort of engagement present or something. So she does make sacrifices, and and McTeague was a very insensitive and sort of brute. He makes a lot of changes for her in their marriage and becomes more gentle and yeah, and is know, very patient with her. You know, very she's patient. like, okay, we can't afford it, and he, he more or less is like, okay, okay, we need to downsize. And he's like, okay, he kind of knows that the five thousand exists and that they don't really have to downsize, but he's patient for a long time i know and this is what's kind of fascinating to me and i think this is probably universally true when there's prosperity it's a lot easier to be civil civil yeah but yeah when money problems start to arise tensions you know start really tearing apart relationships a lot of the time and families you know yeah parents start drinking or becoming abusive you know I mean, I, I wanted to ask you about that, too. I thought about Jane Austen, because in her novels, marriage and money are always paired. Yeah. People don't get married without large sums of money being at the forefront of everyone's attention. And I think her novels sometimes get critiqued because of that. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? That it's, it's not a quote-unquote pure romance, because there's always these large fortunes at stake as well. Yeah. But uh, I, don't, I don't know. What do you think about that, the connection between, either in this book or in Austen, the the relationship between money and marriage. and Because I think, like, why does money matter for a person like Elizabeth Bennet? Well, I think it matters that Darcy is rich because, or maybe better is Anne Elliot in, in Persuasion. It matters that Wentworth has made something of himself and has become rich in the Navy because she has that friend, Mrs. Smith, who is a kind of foil. This is what might happen if you make marriage choices that aren't financially wise. Yeah. You become a destitute pauper. Yeah. Kind of dying alone. So so weirdly, it kind of... Is it unromantic to say that money matters in a marriage? What about these two old people, Mrs. Baker and Grannis? It doesn't seem to matter to them. Well, we don't know their financial situation. Well, we or do. The, Grannis has gotten a lot of money but he, towards he the end of the book. He seems to regret it. He does. And Mrs. Baker was already in love with him before that. Yeah. To to him, it doesn't even really seem to matter that he got that money. You know, he's like, I've made quite a bit of money, more than I ever thought I would, but he doesn't say anything about being how he feels about it. He doesn't really seem to care. The only thing that he ever expresses true feelings about is this love that came into his life very late. It's actually extremely, extremely moving, I think, their whole love story. It's, I, I do too, but it's not without its illusions. They both have a kind of romanticized version of how it should go. Well, and yeah. what should be said and in what order. Right. I love this little paragraph here. It's when they actually first speak to each other. Mm-hmm. And um, the topic of the conversation just happens to be somebody else's children that's in the room. It's mm-hmm. kind of very mundane discussion about this child. Old Granis's fingers trembled on the table ledge. His heart beat heavily. His breath fell short. He had actually talked to the little dressmaker. That possibility to which he had looked forward, it seemed to him for years, that companionship, that intimacy with his fellow lodger, that delightful acquaintance which 
was only to ripen at some far distant time he could not exactly say when. Behold, it had suddenly come to a head, here in this overcrowded, overheated room, in the midst of all this feeding, surrounded by odors of hot dishes, accompanied by the sounds of incessant incessant mastication, could they have this big feast after the, the wedding. How different he had imagined it would be. There were to, They were to be alone, he and Miss Baker, in the evening somewhere, withdrawn from the world, very quiet, very calm and peaceful. Their talk was to be of their lives, their lost illusions, not of other people's children. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's... um. Well, it's true. It kind of um, puts them on the same level in some ways as all the other characters, but not in a bad way. You know, because McTeague, when he first falls for Trina, he's dreaming about her. And it even says he's not quite even sure what he's dreaming of, just some place somewhere else where it's always Sunday. I know, I remember that, yeah. So, all humans dream. All humans have illusions, right? Yeah, absolutely. I was thinking about... um that in relation to the wealth, like Maria and Zerkov have this sick little ritual where they fantasize about all this gold. I, I don't want to get annoying, but I, I've thought a lot over the years about Coleridge. He has this distinction between fantasy and imagination. And he, I mean, maybe to oversimplify it, he considers imagination to be divine and crucial to the soul. It's a kind of creative force. Mm-hmm. And it helps us commune with other humans. It helps us connect to the earth it helps us kind of intuit the the inner lives of other people and it helps us make great art and it helps us when we're in nature feel like we can see something in nature that responds to our presence do you know what i mean it's a very grand and connective divine force imagination is to him Mm. but then he has this other term called fancy which we would i suppose say fantasy and for him fantasy is obsession yes yes um he compares it to like drapery, just a false facade, lies that we tell ourselves in order to escape unpleasant truths. So we can fantasize. Like the figurines that Trina made paints. in France. Exactly, in exactly, France. exactly. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So maybe this is a little bit of a weird lens through which to see this book, but. No, I think it's actually perfect. Every human has to, for themselves, negotiate the difference between fantasy and imagination. How can I retain this divine gift of imagination? while escaping the pitfalls of fantasy. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I want to be able to live imaginatively in the world, but I don't want to lie to myself about the way the world is. You mean hang a giant tooth in front of your office and say, <laughs> I'm a dentist, and he's not a dentist, he's exactly. not a doctor. Exactly. Or Zerkov and Maria, they con- Zerkov at least convinces himself that somewhere there is this giant hoard of gold. That Maria used to be a millionaire, or is one. It's a complete fantasy, and it's poison. It's harmful. But he loves it. They both love it. They, I find so fa- I find it so fascinating. They pour the, each other whiskey, and then they start to really yeah, revel in this fantasy. Really obscene. It's really sick, but so they use it to kind of escape reality, whereas. Yeah. Just like alcohol, just like whiskey. Exactly, yeah. So I feel like Grannis and Baker, I feel like everyone in the book is living in fantasy land. Mm-hmm. Grannis and Baker. Yeah, they're not exempt from it. They they do from time to time, but we see them continuously being able to match reality with their imagination. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And the result is something real and pure. Yeah. Why, why does... I mean, I was thinking about this, too, because Trina fantasizes about the money. She fantasizes about the money. Oh, my God. 
gosh. One but day we, she even. I got to. We got to read that part. You mean the bed? <laughs> it's so good. Oh my gosh. It's was, so good. I can't wait to get to that part in the silent movie. I know it's going to be good. <laughs> this is later in the book when her greed kind of climaxes. At times when she knew that McTeague was far from home, she would lock her door, open her trunk, and pile all her little hoard on the table. By now it was $407.50. Trina would play with this money by the hour, piling it and repiling it, or, <laughs> or gathering it all into one heap, drawing back to the farthest corner of the room to note the effect, her head on one side. She polished the gold pieces with a mixture of soap and ashes until they shone wiping them carefully on her apron, or again she would draw the heap lovingly toward her and bury her face in it, delighted at the smell of it and the feel of the smooth, cool metal on her cheeks. She even put the smaller gold pieces in her mouth and jingled them there. She loved her money with an intensity that she could hardly express. She would plunge her small fingers into the pile with little murmurs of affection, her long, narrow eyes half-closed and shining, her breath coming in long sighs. Ah, the dear money, the dear money, she would whisper. I love you so. All mine, every penny of it. No one shall ever, ever get you. And then, I don't know where this happens, but she lies in bed with it. She spreads it. She eventually cashes out her full $5,000, right, and, and converts it into gold coins, puts it all in her bed, and just sleeps in it. Mm-hmm. So, and it suggests something <clears throat> sexual. <clears throat> Weirdly sexual. <laughs> Something weirdly sexual? Well, I guess this is my question. Like, why do, Why is everyone so obsessed with money? We're ne we're, isn't it so strange to you? We're never told, like, Trina wanted this money because she wanted to buy this house up on this rich hill. Or Zarekov wanted all this gold because he wanted to buy this extremely expensive horse. Like, mm -hmm. why do they want this money? It's, what are they fantasizing about? What is what is the fantasy? It's. I think the money is just a symbol for how badly we want to want things. I think we like having dreams that are not quite clear, just like McTeague would fantasize about a future with Trina, but he didn't even know what that was. It was just always Sunday, you know what I mean? But it was just going to be good. We like having vague dreams, unattainable things to give ourselves fully to. And I actually think this, this part with Trina and the money so much is like her relationship with McTeague because McTeague himself has clearly nothing to offer no qualities i mean when we first meet him and he's characterized he's just basically as a tall boxy brute he's a brute and he's kind of stupid i don't know yeah, if he has stupid. no qualities i mean he well once they are married they kind of things he becomes more charming and he starts having qualities but he's he's not the pick of the litter <laughs> no he's he's basically like an animal honestly yeah so she she sees nothing in him, absolutely nothing. But then, and she even really regrets having married him, but then she by and by starts to really love him because, specifically it's mentioned, because she gave herself to him. She completely, fully surrendered to him. And I think that's so much like obsessions. We completely surrender to obsessions, and we like having them in some cases. Because they're this like insatiable fire that just keeps burning and keeps us motivated. So the money is just something to obsess over. It's just an object to obsess over, yeah. That gives vague promises. And vague promises are good because we don't have to think things tr through. We don't have to have a reality check. You think Granison Baker... Yeah, and even those two people who are 
very charming and uh, seem like kind, generous people, yeah, even they fall prey to this tendency in more innocent ways, but it's the same thing. They have a kind of maturity, though. They, they can get out of it. Yes. Everyone, it's cute because every one of their interactions goes awry. Yeah. Their first snippet of dialogue together isn't about what it should have been about. And then there's that one scene where he knocks the bag out of her hands and all her groceries spill over the the stairs. Yeah. And then there's that one moment where he she brings him tea and he's so stunned at her arrival that he can't speak and she interprets it badly and is really awkward. <laughs> so it's like their their courtship is actually an unbroken series of awkward mishaps. But it's complete honesty. You know what I mean? Compared to all the other relationships, they're all dishonest. McTeague's not a real dentist. Trina's not from the beginning started hiding money, right? Yeah, that's right. I think you're right. Because there's even that one bit where Grannis is like, you know how you sit, how you quote unquote sit with me in the evenings right here on this side of your room? And she says, oh, I don't do that. She kind of plays coy for a little bit. Mm-hmm. And he says, no, you do. I know where you sit. And she says, yeah, I do. So she, there's no, nothing being hidden. Exactly. And I think the story needs that element so badly. Or, or is it kind of, maybe they know what they're aspiring to. They're aspiring to, what is Trina aspiring to? She doesn't know. It's, as you say, it's completely vague. They're all just got their own secret little obsessions that they love to polish in the dark. You know what I mean? <laughs> secret weird aspirations while even while miss baker and grannis were living in separate rooms they were still one they almost had nothing concealed from each other even though they were separated physically or do you think i mean i'm just now like thinking on the spot here do you think that their relationship worked out because they knew what they were aspiring to it was each other it wasn't some fake dream just piles of gold for example or oh yeah you know what i mean like they they knew who each other were, and they wanted that thing. Yeah, yeah. So there was I so there. Most... So, so I guess what I'm saying is there was no fantasy. Yeah, and in, I think fantasy and obsession is deeply, deeply related to dishonesty and illusion. Right? Dishonesty towards yourself and other people. Because Trina, their relationship is honest at first, and then she starts to hoard all this money and. Mm-hmm. She won't tell him things, and he won't tell her things, and yeah, and um, it's the and this dishonest. Oh yeah, this this was really fascinating to me as well. You know, she those figures that she paints that are made in France supposedly and have quote unquote non toxic paint. Yeah, that's that's hor- repeated. Horrifying detail. It's repeated many times, and and then finally. Um, it's really disturbing they you know to read about how McTeague gradually started to abuse her physically. He used to um bite her fingers. He would purposely choose the one that was really sore and her fingers would just be swollen and at some point she gets blood poisoning because she's painting with these uh injured fingers and with the non with the toxic paint. Yeah, it is toxic. It is, right. And yeah, she gets blood poisoning, and I thought that was such a... And she has to have ha- half of her fingers oh. from that hand amputated, and she becomes a scrub woman, scrubbing the floors with these brushes with, like, two and a half fingers. It's insane. And still, she cares more. She doesn't even seem to care that much about having lost those fingers, because she keeps getting out the money, the, the 5000 that she had invested. 
she doesn't even really seem to care about her fingers. Like her obsession is so intense that she doesn't see what literal physical things she is losing. <laughs> and I, I just thought thinking of meaning and art in your life, it's not just um, a lack of art in your life is bad, but especially the non, the fraudulent kind of art. You know, she's really into like paintings of cute girls looking up at heaven and little <laughs> angels and stuff. That's always her favorite art if they, right. in the beginning when they were trying to be cultured and they went to museums, right? She liked all the cute. Yeah, that's right. They go to that, angels. They go to that little theater night and she loves those sappy, sentimental love songs. And- uh huh. Right. So we already know she, she likes illusions. She likes, she likes obsession or fantasies. She likes fantasy, yeah. Rather than, um, the imagination. Meaningful imagination. It's holistic and creative and honest. You know, the imagination is so, honest and fantasy is not honest. And the opposite, sentimental and bad art, is like poisonous paint. It says it's non-toxic, but oh, it, that's so true. it will kill you. It, it will, will kill your soul. You will lose yeah. things. <laughs> We're reading Don Quixote right now. Do you think Don Quixote is... Is driven by imagination or fantasy? Oh, fantasy for sure. Really? Huh? Yeah. I don't disagree with you. No, no, I'm not asking a question that I think has a correct answer. Yeah. I mean, I haven't read the whole thing yet. No, no, no. I know, but you've gotten a big chunk, good flavor. But he seems very self-aware. He seems to know that it's fantasy because... Well, yeah. (laughs) He'd rather not meet Dulcinea, right? Exactly right, because he wants to fantasize a specific type of woman, and if he meets her, then that fantasy won't be available to him anymore. Exactly. Then he won't have the fuel that he needs to keep going. He won't have the motivation, right? Is there nothing? Is there no noble imagination in his? I don't. I, I'm, this is not a leading question. Is there nothing kind of honest, divine, creative, empathetic? Well, he does seem to care about people wanting to help them, so. It could. It strikes me. We're now talking about a different novel, but it strikes me as kind of accidentally honest. He sees those prostitutes and calls them princesses and <laughs> noble women. And of course, it's like everyone is divine. Every human is divine. It's a kind of truth that he's accidentally landing on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I know. I don't know. I, I, back to McTeague. He. Um, there's that wonderful bit, maybe this is a pointless avenue of discussion, but I find his profession very interesting. Do you think, why dentistry? Do you think I there's know. anything, it could have been so many professions. It's got to be because of the gold, right? Gold fillings and thinking of the gold rush in America and, well, yeah, and gold, just as a perfect symbol for wealth and the obsession with wealth and, and greed. Yeah, dentist makes sense. I ask myself that too. I'm like, could have he could have pretended to be anything. I hate this kind of question, so I kind of hate that I'm asking it. But is there, in addition to that, is there anything else? Is there something to it about like drilling or incising or cutting or boring? Because there's that bit when he gets to the mountains, mining, mining. He was a miner, and then he mm. became a dentist. So there are drilling holes. Oh, interesting. He says. Um, Once it even occurred to him that there was a resemblance between his present work and the profession he had been forced to abandon. Mm -hmm. In the burly drill, he saw a queer counterpart of his old-time dental engine. And what were the drills and chucks but enormous hoe excavators, hard bits and burrs? It was the same work he had so often performed in his dentist parlors, only magnified, made monstrous, distorted, and grotesqued. 
the caricature of dentistry. Wow. I thought that was a very interesting paragraph. And he has a canary in the. That's a very in interesting too. detail too. I know. I don't. I always forget what's the what's the point of having a canary in a mine. Oh, I think because if there are toxic gases that are unleashed, the canary dies. And so if you see the bird dead in its cage, you know that you're breathing something you shouldn't be breathing. Interesting. I uh, I thought that was a very touching detail that he clung to this canary up until the very end. Yeah. In Death Valley in the desert. I don't know when the canary ends up dying, but I thought that was fascinating. I, I think that was a really moving detail because even an animal and a seemingly a complete brute and dishonest person like McTeague longs for beauty longs for music art meaning you know what i mean or what did you make of that yeah i thought so too he doesn't know what he's longing for but the canary kind of is giving it to him in some very minuscule way i shouldn't say minuscule canaries are great and everything but it's a tiny tiny little fragment of something sublime yeah, and he feels very strongly about his ins- musical instrument, the melodeon that he, at the end, sees at a thrift store, comes across, you know, where he's working. And gives up a lot of money to get it back. Exactly. All these characters, they want creative expression so badly, they just don't know it. And all of that longing to create and make meaning is completely misdirected into greed. Well, I have two questions left for you. Mm-hmm. The first is that you are an artist who paints and sells painting. Mm-hmm. How have you developed a healthy attitude regarding making beauty for money? That's something that you feel like is always going to be full of tension, contradictions. Feel like you've found a harmonious way to sell art. Is that a contradiction in terms? Do you wish that you didn't have to sell it? I think I'll always feel weird about it. I don't think I'll ever get used to it. I do think that I haven't really reached any real conclusions on this, but I used to feel really guilty about it. Like I would just have meltdowns (laughs) after somebody would buy a painting and I just thought, how could I take money? But now I think, especially in a place like America where art really isn't valued that much and it's not a big part of everyday life and culture i think i think it's okay to to let people who do have money for these kinds of things support support art and artists and to help them make more of it it's not like i'm you know forcing poor people on the streets to buy my art <laughs> you know what i mean yeah go get a loan so you can I view, I think of it as uh, people who can are supporting the creation of more art. Of course, you know, all artists throughout time have had their rich patrons. We wouldn't have, you know, the Mona Lisa or the Sistine Chapel or you name it. Mm -hmm. Shakespeare's plays, if he didn't have, if he wasn't making money off of writing them, we wouldn't have them. Mm -hmm. Samuel Johnson said anyone, no, he said only a blockhead would write for any other reason but for money. Why write if you're not going to make money off of it? But on the other hand, you are also a poet, and you ha- I've heard you recently celebrate the fact that you can write poetry and have it be completely disconnected from anything practical yeah. or economical, that it's not for sale. That's a kind of oasis to you. So there must be something slightly uncomfortable or complicated. I honestly think of them as separate things. 
when I'm painting, it's a completely different world. I'm kind of in a, you know, weird zone and I'm a, I'm in a weird, happy trance that's completely separate from the business aspect of it. You know what I mean? Yeah, but, when you're, that, but you're just special though. It's because you're a good person. Oh, yeah, that's it. It is. Isn't it? <laughs> it is it. Because too many other people in your shoes would turn themselves into Trina's money-making machines. What's popular? What sells the most? What is the maximum I can charge for this? You, on the other hand, paint only what you want to paint. You don't care about what sells. That's not a common trait is what I'm trying to say. I mean, it's not totally rare, but it's not the default mode. Well, I I don't have any, like... <clears throat> noble decision-making points, you know? <laughs> I just, I, I can only paint what I'm interested in anyway, so if I started painting things I thought would sell, I would lose interest very quickly. The only other question I have for you is, are you sure this novel isn't too sad? Maria gets her face beat to death. Trina is strangled to death in an elementary school. Mm. McTeague is chained to a corpse at the end. I mean, is Frank Norris just, is this realism run rampant? Is this kind of realism turned into cynicism? Is it, I don't know, maybe I, I shouldn't know. be out. I... We've read King Lear before and, 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 you know, find, and Macbeth, which you loved, found very life-affirming. But something about this book I found, I'm not making, I, I have not come to this conclusion yet, but I just wonder, is it too much? Yes, it is too much, but that's what I like about it. It's like an extreme cautionary tale, and but still at the same time it does f it does feel real. And Yeah, lives do end up like this. Oh yeah, of that's course. True. Of course. Of course this happens and I thought strangely the ending was a bit of uh was a bit happy. I know that sounds crazy, but I think these characters ached so much for beauty and meaning in their lives. And finally, in the very end, it all washes over McTeague. It's, he's in Death Valley. It's such a extreme landscape, but, you know, it's described in such beautiful, vivid details. He's He's finally in nature, completely surrounded by beauty. And, of course, he's not happy. It's what will kill him, though. So what do you make of that? Uh, I think you're onto something here because it's Death Valley in particular. He could have died in any wilderness, but it's particular Death Valley. And we're told in this book that Death Valley, one of the things that characterizes it is that there's nowhere to hide, no shade. Exactly. There's not a there's stone, to hide. It's there's complete... not a stone to hide behind, not a tree to hide behind. Mm -hmm. It's complete honesty. It's, it's the truth. And as Keith says, truth is beauty and beauty truth. And for so long, characters in this novel were concealing things, right? And being dishonest. And that was some of their main problems. That was McTeague's, his whole family's downfall. He had lied about being a dentist. And then finally at the end, it's as if it's... The naked. This is a theme in many books. The conscience will get you every time. And it's a beautiful thing, just like in Macbeth. I think it's a very comforting thought. There's nothing you can get away with. On the truth I will see. always wash over you. I see. And it it will do that in any way possible. In his case, he's in Death Valley. He can't hide anywhere. I see. That's a rather... I mean, I agree with you. It's a kind of stoic way to view the ending as happy that 
you can't get away with anything. Emerson, in his essay, Compensations, the rifle has its kickback. You know, every lie will catch up to you. Every single one. Can you find that consoling? I do, in a way. I mean, yeah, of course, it's extremely tragic. Of course, I don't wish he... (laughs) I'm not glad he did all the terrible things he did. But I find it beautiful that that he, that nobody, no matter what awful mistakes you make, um, is not subject to nature. Nature is the greater power. And nature is beautiful. Nature is terrifying. But we're a part of it. And, I mean, what greater symbol is there for truth than nature? It's just, do you know what I mean? I do. Nothing is fake. That's right. There's no Made in France label on nature. No. (laughs) Nature can't have ulterior motives. Death Valley made in France. Exactly. So even Death Valley, (laughs) I mean, the name couldn't be less subtle. (laughs) Even Death Valley is truth and therefore beauty. And in a strange way, a sort of salvation for, from our awful obsessions, our awful lies, our, I don't know, whatever mental shackles we have. It's almost as if nature was taking McTeague back into its arms. You know, when he sees that rattlesnake, Mm. I was almost happy for him. I'm like, there's some company. He's like, oh, I know that sound, you know. It almost didn't seem like a, like only a bad thing. And the mule and the canary, I mean, what better friends did he have than animals? And he was often described as an animal. I'm glad we're talking. This had not occurred to me yet. I see what you mean, and I am in agreement, but it it is not the impression I had at the end. I mean, no, don't get me wrong, I didn't think it was it's a happy scary. ending. Yeah, it's scary. It is scary, but there is like... I see what you I mean, though. I breathe a sort of sigh of relief, I'm like, oh, finally, it's over for him, like... Well, this, this takes us back full circle to how you began the conversation. You recently got off Instagram, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think that you feel, to a large extent, that you have your life back. Oh, yeah, yeah. So McTeague is out there in the desert, and it's like... Oh, this is real. Yeah. This is reality. This is life. This is living. This is alive. This is not fake. There's the, right. the relationship between me and the rattlesnake is completely transparent. The rattlesnake is a rattlesnake. It's toxic. It's there's, poisonous. Yeah, and it doesn't say non-toxic. There's no barrier or lie or act. There's no acting. Exactly. You know? Exactly. Everything is real exactly. at the end of the book. I mean, it was... The first time in the whole book, I always, you know, I, I love beautiful descriptions, yeah, he's self-indulgent very, descriptions he's of, a very good writer. of landscapes, and it got very beautiful at the end, even though that was the darkest, right? Yeah, I agree. I mean, and think about it, this, the relentless sun, he's in the light, he's finally in the light. <laughs> the beginning, it's raining a lot. Well, San Francisco's a very rainy place. Hmm. And fog. Yeah, that's right, there's always clouds and fog, yeah, that's right. Right. It's really fascinating. And he's a miner in the beginning. Oh, yeah, that's right. Always underground, always buried, always hiding. And then Death Valley, there's nowhere to go. Exposed. Mm, Yeah. On the surface. I find that so beautiful. I think there's an extreme, it's an extremely well-crafted novel. I agree. Very subtle. Every detail is chosen wisely. Yeah, I'm extremely impressed with it. (laughs) And I find the idea really moving, too. You know, I I often ask myself this, you know, why people do the things they do. Are we just animals? No, because we, you know, we supposedly have reason. <laughs> yeah. But so much of our actions are 
we can't help them, right? We're born a certain way and we try, but, you know, it's like when McTeague um, falls in love with Trina and he's like, there's a really moving passage where he's like, I, you know, when he's telling his friend Marcus, I, he's like, there was nothing I could do. I can't help it. it I didn't choose this. It just happened. Mm. And, uh, yeah, falling in love and things like that, they do seem so much out of our control and even falling into obsessions, right? Yeah. So often, I mean, that's the whole definition of an obsession. It's out of your control. And therefore? And therefore, um, there's something very brutish about humans. <laughs> and we are so much like animals in many ways. And it's just, some people just more obviously than others, you know, the McTeagues of the world just make a lot more obvious mistakes, you know? This Is this then a misanthropic book? No, does it, does I it think have a base view of the human creature? I mean... No, I think it's asking, I think it's more of a compassionate view, actually. Humans do terrible things often, but how much of it can they actually help? Are they just trying to survive? Uh, trust me, I'm not, I am not advocating any of the, I'm not supporting any of the decisions McTeague made. He's obviously a murderer. But yeah, greed, I mean, greed is, um, to some extent, I wonder how much of it is really can in our control, right? I don't know. At the end, I just find myself thinking, there's not a human walking through this desert with his mule and bird, but there's three animals. Three creatures. Three creatures trying to survive, you know? People won't like hearing that, though. Oh, I know. No, I know. I, I'm not, like I said, I'm not saying I, I support any of the things he did. I'm not saying he's excused in any way whatsoever. But I am wondering, I am thinking that this could be a, a symbol. It's ob He obviously had these extreme um, ways in which we're dishonest with ourselves or with others. And I'm not saying there's nothing you can do about it, necessarily. I mean, I did say it's out of our control, but the Grannises and the Bakers of the world, and we can be them. I do think the novel is asking to what degree are we... Are we animal? To what deg degree can we help our obsessions? And what can be done about them? What do we do about obsessions? Well, Grannis and Bakers think, oh no, this isn't how our first conversation was supposed to go. I had it all mapped out. It was supposed to be else. It was supposed to be something else than this. But they let that fantasy go. They let it go. Right, There's like a moment it's... of disappointment, and then, it, then they're immediately, they reconnect to what is. You're right, and they accept that they are not in control of certain outcomes, right? They accept that. Yeah. Like, oh, you the, get into trouble when you start trying to to control your life, like when you start hoarding money as if you could. Exactly. Yes, 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 yes. Trina, that's right. She's not in control. She just thinks that she can be. Right there. That's the fault right there. And Grannis and Baker, they spill all the groceries that... They didn't want that to happen, but it's forgotten in a second, you know? Yeah, that's exactly... It's forgotten in a second. They they move on. So they, they again, their relationship is just a series of mishaps, which they immediately get over. They're not attached. It's just, you know, back to... There we go. <laughs> Bhagavad Gita. They, they have transcended this human tendency to get attached. 
to objects, expectations, outcomes. Trina couldn't be more attached. That's so true. And that is the exact opposite of art, right? In art, what you do is surrender. You surrender to mystery and an experience. And she is doing the exact opposite. So the grandesses are like, oh, I, I brought you tea. I'm really embarrassed. You don't seem to have wanted that. She could have really taken offense. Like he, he just says nothing. He's mm-hmm. like, I brought you tea, and he's just so shocked at this gesture. He's speechless, and she, of course, misinterprets that, mm. and is about to leave. And he says, "Stop! Don't go!" You know. So one miscommunication after the next, mm-hmm. but they don't get attached to these misstatements or accidents or right. They have expectations, and then those expectations are defied. Mm-hmm. And for a moment, Grannis is like, oh, it wasn't supposed to go this way. It was supposed to be romantic. But he doesn't keep chasing that romantic fantasy. Yeah. Or, right, or with McTeague, he, when he lost his job, instead of saying, oh, no, that's not how it's supposed to be. We're supposed to be prosperous for the rest of our lives. He could have said, okay, I, this is not how it's supposed to go, but I guess I will try to get a different job, you know. And Trina... Rather loses, than yeah. if eventually kill my wife to get money from her. <laughs> Trina loses three and a half fingers and is so attached to saving the exact same amount of money that she was able to save before. She were, she has this $5,000, but she becomes a scrub woman, scrubbing with two and a half fingers. She's so attached to every single penny. Mm-hmm. She cannot face reality. She cannot roll with the punches. She cannot go with the flow whatever cliche you want to use, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. If that was Grannis or Baker, they would have responded, oh, this was unexpected and not exactly how I would have chosen it to go, but okay, let me readjust. Yeah, I like that. And what else is nature but complete? It's all about surrender, right? You have to accept yeah, the changes in, of nature. You're not in control of Death Valley. Exactly. So finally, life <laughs> sort of forced McTeague to finally surrender, right? Finally surrender to... The ultimate surrender of death. (laughs) Gosh. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. In a couple weeks, we'll post a new recording about Flannery O'Connor's novel, Wise Blood. Neither Claire or I have ever read that book before, and we're really excited to dive into it.